Swivel. It's not the first industry that comes to mind as having been dealt a blow from the COVID-19 crisis. After all, the agricultural industry has been deemed essential from the start. But as we've discovered, no one has gotten off scot-free from this pandemic. As soon as the international borders shut, we noticed the crippling absence of workers from overseas who we relied on to fill the gaps that our local workforce could not. Both skilled and unskilled workers went home or couldn't enter the country, and it revealed a large hole in the industry that farmers and contractors have been desperately trying to fill ever since. From Swivel Media, I'm Amanda Reedy, and this is Resolve, stories from a stop-start nation. For this episode, we look into the ways the agriculture industry has been forced to adapt and how they're looking to the future now to address the worker crisis. Those in the agricultural industry have always been a resourceful bunch, coming up with solutions to the many problems they face on the daily. They also know that not all things are within their control, with the weather being the obvious example. But it's also the case with the ebb and flow of the seasonal workforce, with a large proportion of pickers, packers, shed and farm hands being made up of backpackers or overseas workers who can only work for certain amounts of time for one employer. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, many on temporary work visas were sent back to their home countries, taking their skills with them. Even some of those with permanent residency or on the pathway to residency, as is often the case with shearers, felt like they needed to return to their home country, which was another blow to the ag sector. Roger Pierce, a shearing contractor based in Ararat, employed anywhere between 90 and 100 people for his business before COVID and services around 100 farms. Born into the industry, he lives and breathes shearing. When COVID hit and international borders were shut, shearers he previously relied on from New Zealand and the UK couldn't get to Australia or went home. This paired with a lack of workers across the board means he's been running a skeleton staff as best he can for some time now. Was probably about um, about the August last year when we went to start our main shares. That really affected. I usually get oh, about six or seven from the UK, um, probably about twenty or thirty from from New Zealand coming over. So that's that's had a huge impact on having the the staff to actually do the amount of work that we. We usually have this time of the year and and the pressure that it's put on our full-time staff now. You normally would have about 36 to 40 shares at this period of time. We were down to about 24, 25 of our full-time shares. The shared hands, yeah, shared hands, that, that was a shortage as well. Shares, look, they pull the sheep out, take the wool off the sheep. Um, the shared hands will, will, will grab the fleece um, to chuck on the table to get sorted, to get classed. And then the classer, who's another part of the team, would class the wool into its grade, then put it, um, put it where they needed to, to 
to get pressed up, which then you've got the presser who who presses all the wool up into bales. It's such an intertangle of everyone needs everyone in this job, from the shearer to the classer to the shed hands to the presser to the farmer trying to get the sheep in. So everyone, if if there's a downfall like shed hands, we do have trouble with um, having enough shed hands. Um, classes as well, that's a big problem through the whole industry, that there's not enough wool classes around either. Forced to make do with what he's got, Roger asked a lot of his full-time staff, which has come with its own new set of challenges. But it wasn't just the well-being of his staff he had to look out for, it was that of the sheep as well. Yeah, there's the only way we could do anything was just pushing through with what we had for the staff that we had for the full-timers um, and working more or less seven days a week. We would have worked eight days a week, but there's only seven days a week in the week. So um, we, yeah, it wasn't great last year. Not so much me because I don't believe in, in, in being mentally fatigued or anything like that because I just can't afford to. But um, I, I just see the drainage that I've done on, on the workers having to push them so hard and just mentally they they just get that tired. So it, it has been very, very difficult for the workers especially. Uh, we ended up getting roughly roughly about seven, eight weeks behind. So for animal welfare, wasn't great, especially with the weather the way it was last year. It was nowhere near as bad as this year, but last year um, when we were getting... A, bit, a fair bit of moisture and then the heat as well it started uh, causing a fly wave with um, fly blowing sheep and that sort of stuff and that's not pretty not only for us but also for the animal you can imagine maggots crawling all over you their stock was not only suffering but they were more or less dying it's once uh, once it starts getting pretty bad on the sheep to fly that it, it doesn't take long for the for the sheep to die you know? look I'd have a lot of farmers that were ringing me nearly every second day more or less to see how we're traveling how far away we could be and we were having to in the end sort of drop farmers that weren't having dramas with their sheep and trying to get uh, the ones that were having trouble um, done and so they didn't have that drama too much so it, it was quite a stressful time not only for myself but also the farmers obviously and all our staff that we were putting so much pressure on them, making them work harder and harder just so we could uh, you know, help the farmers get their stock um, under control health-wise. It became clear very quickly that with the lack of available workers, there could be serious and severe impacts on their produce. In a not-too-dissimilar manner to the impact on sheep, one berry farmer we spoke to also stressed that without those skilled workers to care properly for his crop, his business could quickly fall apart. Yeah, my name's Bob Dunnett. I'm a berry fruit farmer in Warriji, which is just out of Beechworth, northeast Victoria. And we're a, a small-scale producer. We grow mainly undercover, and our market is predominantly pick-your-own. And then we also we sell pack fruit at the farm gate and we do some local farmers markets. Really our fruiting season goes most of the year um, in terms of employing staff which is aligned to fruit production. We, during the winter, 
months. We have a couple of people here. In early spring, we build it up to about three or four. And once we hit uh, late November and early December, which is now, we're up to maybe eight people, which is what we've got today. Yep. And so, and we go, the eight people go right through probably until mid-February and then we start to scale back down until we get to June where we're back down to two or three. The majority of the staff that I have backpackers for the past 15 years, the majority of the staff come back for at least the second year or even the third year. And we realised that yeah, when those guys went, they weren't going to be able to get back in. And so we had to try and yeah, advertise. So we, we're lucky that we advertised early and, again, we were able to scrape through. And we, But last year we were definitely understaffed. When it comes to employing a berry picker, Bob is not only looking for the skills and speed required, but because he's a small business, he needs all-rounders to ensure the customers get the most out of their experience. We run a reasonably complex operation, as in we grow undercover and we also grow using an integrated pest management technique. So we're not really using any chemicals. The chemicals we're using are really soft chemicals, but we're buying in bugs to good bugs, with the bad bugs. We're doing a lot of cultural work, so we're keeping the plants really clean, taking the old leaves off, and this requires a, a level of skill, and we're happy to pay for that level of skill. It's just having people who have experience in doing that or are quick with their hands. The other thing about my business is that I need people who are, who also have customer service skills so because we have a you know we're selling our berries we're managing pick your own and so a person might you know in the morning they might be picking for a few hours they might be packing they might be serving they might be going to a market so it's just what I say we have a reasonably complex job you just need people who are who understand that and realize that it is it is quite hard while Bob speaks of luck in finding enough skilled people to complete the delicate task of berry picking, fueling an entire sector that is generally hungry for workers isn't as simple as placing an ad in the paper anymore. Over the last two years, COVID has forced the issue of our dwindling ag workers even more. One industry body in particular who saw this coming was the National Farmers Federation, who have been campaigning for the government to introduce an agricultural visa to attract workers for several years now. And just as well they did, because the ag visa was announced by the government this year, with the first workers from the scheme to arrive early 2022. Without their foresight, the industry could have been far worse off than it is now. We spoke with the Federation's General Manager for the Workplace Relations and Legal, Ben Rogers, who was responsible for most things related to the farming workforce. So concerns about workforce shortages for the farming sector have been an issue for many, many years. I started with the NFF back in 2017, uh, and it was a principal agenda item back then. And, you know, it's, it's, it's been around for long before then, really for decades. So there are shortages of, of workers in the ag sector for a number of reasons. One is that lot, most of the work is, is located remotely. Um, it's, it's, it's in the regions, it's in, it's in the rural sectors, it's in the rural areas. So there's been a you know, process of urbanisation, which has reversed a little bit over the past sort of 12 to, 12 to 18 months with COVID and so forth. 
it's it's a lot of it is 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 hard labor you know it's hard work it's being out in the sun it's not seen as the sexy sort of work working with you know high technology but a lot of this is just perceptions i should say it's not actually the case there is a lot of work dealing with you know very expensive pieces of equipment or, or you know, cutting-edge technology. It's, it's, the, the perceptions are not great. We experience a lot of the shortages within the lower school, so that's an issue. There are, there are perceptions out there, not, of, not wholly unearned, um, that, that people aren't treated as well as they should be on farms. So we're dealing with that a fair bit, and we're trying to, we're trying to address that as a sector and, and find a way to, to tidy that up. According to the Federation, the perceptions of what it's like in the ag industry are what have contributed to the shortage, especially for Aussie workers. And yet on top of that, our over-reliance on backpackers to feed the workforce is what has driven their advocacy for a dedicated agricultural visa. I think maybe um, COVID highlighted to government how reliant the sector really is on backpackers and migrant labour and how necessary it would be to have a dedicated visa solution rather than sort of this, this bolt onto existing other programs like the backpacker visa. So I think it might have sharpened their mind a little bit. But really, the dedicated ag visa is not a is not a, an answer to, to COVID workforce shortages. It's a much more longer term. We, we're hoping it's a sort of once in a generation type change to the way a, um, agriculture managers and farms manage their labour source. So we're planning for the future. We're not planning for the next six months. We're not planning for the next twelve months. We're planning for the next twelve years, twelve generations, maybe. Um, yeah. And then there's the backpacker program, which, as I say. For seasonal work in horticulture can be upwards of 80% of the workforce uh, and then in the other commodities 15 to 10%, 10%, very important. Uh, But backpackers, although they're an extremely important source of labour and and really indispensable, particularly for the the sector as it exists now, the backpacker visa, it's a a working, it's a holiday visa, it's not a working visa. People don't come over here to to work, Uh, they come over here to have a holiday and they work to, to, to supplement their income and to support their holidays and their travels, but really they're not coming over here to work. In Australia currently, there are already existing worker schemes alongside the backpacker visa, the seasonal worker scheme and the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme that it now sits under are programs designed to help the workforce, but they are largely only useful to big producers who have the ability to sponsor people from overseas for longer periods of time. So for the Federation, there is still more work to be done. So a dedicated ag visa is something that the NFF has been calling for for around about five to six years. As I say, there are a few visa programs that the um, sector has relied on to to supplant the labour force, particularly in those semi-skilled and low-skilled roles. Um, as I say, um, there's a seasonal worker program and the Pacific Labour Schemes, which are some programs which are designed by the by the federal government very important sources of labour, particularly for those low-skilled jobs, but they don't necessarily tick all the boxes. They are very heavily managed um, and, and fairly significant barriers to entry. So it's great, really useful for the bigger producers who can plan ahead. Uh, but when you're doing, dealing with smaller farmers and they don't know exactly what the season holds and what the weather might hold, being able to plan six months in advance is a much bigger ask and much more difficult for them. Uh, but we really wanted something that was a dedicated ag visa, something that would principally replace those backpackers and reliance on those backpackers. Seasonal worker program, it has a niche, it has its own role and it's really important and we really, really want to see that program thrive and we're doing all that we can to see that thrive. But we really need something to, to come in and, and and maybe, not immediately, it's not going to happen immediately, but ultimately maybe, you know, replace the backpackers and give us a, a more dedicated, productive workforce to, to slot into that role. So that's where the Ag Visa comes in. 
The National Farmers Federation are expecting more announcements within days, minutes or hours of this podcast going to air. To find out some of the finer details around the program, announced in August of 2021, they had hoped it would be ready in time for this year's harvest, but now think it's more likely to come to fruition early next year. The the initial hope was that we'd have our first ag visa workers actually in the country, you know, late December. Um, but you know, that was probably being always being a little bit optimistic. So we are hopeful. The plan is still to have some ag visa workers in the country sort of late January, early February, uh, and then the program to evolve from there. What we're calling phase one is really just a pilot. It's just going to be a very small load of um, workers and um, it's going to be a very, very tightly controlled uh, just to try and make sure we get some of those settings right and, and testing the way that it's operating and it'll evolve over the coming years. There has been a, a commitment that... that the program will expand and will evolve, and as it expands and evolves, it will extend to other countries. And particularly, we'll be looking at the countries where the backpackers do come from, so that be the UK, um, the US, and Europe, um, where they, they actually do have some skills which are transferable into Australian farms, like driving harvesters and that sort of thing, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily get out of the ASEAN countries. The Ag Visa is not the Federation's only focus, and they're acutely aware it's going to take an amalgamation to address the shortages we're experiencing in the sector now but also for future generations. But, you know, we're not unrealistic about this stuff. We really do want to get Aussies out there. We really do want to get Aussies in, encouraging them to, to, to get ag degrees and, and engage with some, in some of the vet courses that are available for them to learn how to, to, to become, um, you know, a farm manager or an agronomist or whatever it might be. But um, at the end of the day, there is... We, we just don't think there's a, there's a cultural focus on farm work. Um, we think that there is a, there's a bit of a shift in, all, in, frankly, in all first world nations away from doing that sort of work um, from the from the sort of domestic labour market. So um, it's a matter of you know building the the, 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 the sort of the um, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle, I guess. Is, is getting all the right components in place, and one of those is will be the visa workers. One of those will be Aussie workers, and they'll probably have different roles within the organisations and bring different skill sets. Um, so we are trying to promote those Aussie workers with these various programs, but we're also being realistic and saying, you know, there is going to be always going to be a role in the future for, for migrant workers as well. We just want to make sure that we get that right and the way they're treated right. For Bob, the Ag Visa presents an exciting opportunity to get workers in with the right skill set, which includes workers from Southeast Asia in particular, who are expected to be part of the initial rollout of the program. I have people from Vietnam, I have Thai people, I have uh, people from Sri Lanka and the reason that I really like them is that they've grown up with it. They've like I've got a couple of girls here and you know, they've been since they've been little kids, they've been in the rice fields hand planting, you know, forty degrees in in the rice paddy. So from a very young age they used they understand it the reality of what agriculture is about, which is what a lot of people, you know, that we, that there's less and less people now that even have a backyard. So they have less experience with growing vegetables or having any understanding of how a plant works. And so if, if I can get people who are who are skilled, who are quick, who and who enjoy working in agriculture, that just, that sounds really attractive to me. The ag visa is where it's at because it's it's the reality of you know that my business has grown a bit. I don't I don't want it to get any big, bigger, but it's got to the stage where I do need skilled people and I need reliable skilled people. The ag visa is a, a huge start. 
According to Bob, the introduction of the new ag visa and other recent changes are signalling a positive shift in the horticultural industry. In November, the Fair Work Commission ruled to abolish piece rates, which paid pickers according to the amount of produce they harvested, instead of ensuring pickers were paid a base award rate of about $25 an hour. He thinks the changes will only serve to bring in more skilled people to fill the workforce. I think the, the piece, getting rid of the piece rates is a really great thing. But also the base rate for a picker now is, I think it's twenty five forty one, and they need to. You just can't have incompetent people when you're paying in twenty five forty one. And so the the flip side to, the, to that is that we need to be able to access people who have got experience and skill, and that those people are probably in Southeast Asia, and that's what the Ag Vs is all about. So I think the government's making a really good move, and I think it's the the days when it was easy to... Uh, there was there will always be exploitation, but when it was easy to exploit people with peace rates, I think they're, they're over, and I think it's a really it's a really great thing. I think it's making the, the industry more professional, and at the end of the day, I think the customer is going to get uh, better quality fruit. One thing has been abundantly clear from speaking to our guests is that they hold their workers in high regard. After all, they are workers in an industry that require both a niche set of skills as well as a strong work ethic and drive to work in the conditions they do. For shearers, it's sometimes a thankless or even ridiculed role, and with the added weight on their shoulders of making up for lost workers and time, it's been rough to say the least. For Roger, the shearing industry is all he's ever known, and it's clear that he's grateful to have people that have stuck by him through the pandemic. Look, I decided in June this year that, look, it wasn't going to get any better, we weren't going to get the workers than we normally do, so I did actually have meetings with all my full-time staff saying, look, this is how it is. I need you guys to help me get through all this um, and get yourselves prepared mentally and physically. And I'm so lucky with the full-time staff I have. They they are brilliant and they are busting their backsides to get through the work that normally we would have 35 shearers. So, look, it, we're getting through with what we've got. And the farmers have been really brilliant. Last year they were brilliant knowing that everything was that screwed up. This year... The only reason we're behind at the moment, we're about two and a half weeks behind with the shearing, uh, about a week and a half behind with the crutching, and that's only been because of the weather, not not because of our shortfall of staff, because we decided this is the staff we've had, so they were actually doing really good, so I've got to take my hat off and, and, uh, and say to them how stoked and proud of them I am. For the future, Roger is ever hopeful of converting the right people into the shearing way of life. As I said earlier, I'm biased to this job. I, I think it's the best job ever. But it does take a lot of pain to get good at it. But once, you're, once you get going and keep going, you, the harder you work, the more you're going to make. So it's uh, brilliant. And you can get around the world doing it. Come and have a go. And not just have a go, but have a real crack at it. Give it your best honest attempt. It's the tiniest window into the way the agriculture and horticultural sectors have been affected during this pandemic, but plain to see how the COVID-19 crisis has turned everything on its head. The gaps in the workforce have only gotten wider, and the effects on livestock and produce have been nothing short of devastating. And yet it's an industry of ingenuity, 
of pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps and getting on with the job. After all, there are mouths to feed and sheep to shear. And when so much has been thrown their way over the course of not just the pandemic, but for most farmers' working lives, it's truly something to have such a vision for the future and a pathway out of this. As we wrap up this last episode of 2021, we can't help but wonder what many of us also lost this year and if we'll ever see a semblance of our old lives again. It's easy to get deflated and apprehensively step into the next year ahead. After all, we all thought 2021 might go a little differently. We asked Melbourne's Lord Mayor Sally Capp why good news and encouraging stories have received so little airtime in the last two years. Her response was so insightful and encouraging that we thought it was a great note to end our last show on. We've been in a very extreme situation. This is sort of a once in a lifetime experience, I hope anyway, in terms of a pandemic that literally impacts the, the globe. And I think many of the responses have been driven by fear and anxiety and the media has reflected that. And let's face it, when you're in a time that we've never experienced, we don't have a playbook where people are dying, where there's so much uncertainty, those feelings are natural and a focus on those issues is understandable and natural as well. I I look at it this way, there's so much I took for granted previously that when I couldn't do it anymore, I couldn't access it, I, I realised, wow, we have a richness here in Melbourne that had to be closed during this time. Our artists have been so impacted, etc. But they've all still been there doing the most incredible things. I mean, the MSO was doing online performances and our ballet stars were giving us some insight into how they were performing. I know when Moulin Rouge opened that that team had all been working remotely uh, really bringing new features to that show so that it was up an entire level when it opened here in Melbourne from the New York show. I mean, just extraordinary. We've got to acknowledge the realities, but we've also got to acknowledge what we've still got, what we can be proud of. And so many times I'm walking around town chatting to people and I think the one of the most prevalent things that they reflect back to me is that even during the toughest times, they still wanted to feel proud about being a Melbourneian and a Victorian. And it was tough sometimes given what was being said in the media or being said by commentators around Australia. But if we could provide them with those stories and those insights where they could still have those slivers of pride, uh, then they were gratefully received. And we'll continue to do that because Melbourne really is a fantastic city. It's a reflection of the people that make it so special. And we should feel really positive about our future. And let's face it, we're good at transformation. We're good at bounce backs. uh, And we should feel really excited about what's ahead. And that's a wrap for Resolve for 2021. In the new year, we'll be back bringing you more episodes, covering more ground, and speaking to more everyday Australians about their experiences in this stop-start nation. If you have a story you think could be interesting, please email resolve at swivelmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Until then, we wish everyone a safe and happy holidays. Resolve is a production of Swivel Media. It's produced by me, Amanda Reedy, and our executive producer is Scotty Allen. This episode was written by Lauren Fitzgerald, and it was mixed by Rob Clark, with original music from Ash Deneef. Our show artwork is by Mark Osmundi. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and leave a positive rating and review to help others find our show. Visit swivelmedia.com, that's swivel with an O, for details on all of our shows and find us on social media for updates on new releases.